Hey there, everyone. My name's Pat Rothfuss, and I'd like to welcome you to World Builders Weekly, the podcast. Each week, we bring you the best in everything geek, books, board games, interviews with authors, and other notable cool people. Even better, this is all for a good cause, because World Builders is a charity that works to make the world a better place. And we are so glad that you've decided to join us. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to World Builders Weekly. I'm Zay, the Director of Operations here at World Builders. And this is one of our lucky weeks that we have an awesome guest. Welcome, John Gwen. Hello. Thanks for the invite. It's really great to be here. Yeah. Uh, today, we'll be talking about your book, Shadow of the Gods. This is an amazing book. I cannot wait to discuss it with you. I have a couple announcements. And of course, we have trivia as every week for you guys. First and foremost, for any of you that don't know, we're helping SIFWA, the Science Fiction and Fantasy uh, Writers Association, almost forgot what the acronym was, to create their first annual fundraiser. And we are super excited to be a part of this. Please help them out if you can. This is not where the proceeds go to world builders. This is strictly... Uh, Sifwa auction, but um, they have a lot of great stuff going on. A few examples of some of the really cool stuff that Sifwa does. Over 100 scholars are being targeted to writer populations in need for this year's Nebula Conference. The ongoing Disney Must Pay Task Force is working to make sure that writer contracts are honored after major media acquisitions. Sifwa offers a mentorship program open to all genre writers, even if they're not Sifwa members. And as soon as the scope of COVID-19 pandemic became clear, SIFWA created a fund through which authors could seek assistance if their livelihoods were threatened. A lot of cool work there. A little bit on our end, our father Patrick Rothfuss is donating his time for some virtual events there, like a four-person coffee clash. Oh, I get it. It's like coffee clash so they can talk or a one-on-one career coaching thing. So if any of that sounds super interesting to you guys, over there. They have a lot of cool items, also auctioning off some experiential stuff, and it's just a great time. Uh, the bit.ly link will probably be posted, I'd assume, in the chat. It's bit.ly slash sifwa auction, so S-F-W-A auction. You can bid until noon on Monday, May 18th. All right, jumping into trivia quick. This one is our old one, so you guys can throw it into the chat if you think that you got some good guesses going on. What was the name of the 1977 post-apocalyptic film, which was loosely based on the 1969 novel with the same name? Do you think that you might have any idea what this one is, John? I could have a guess. (laughs) What is your guess? Uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Um, I guess, so I didn't know this. It is not. The answer is Damnation Valley. Um, is that a, have you ever seen that? No. <laughs> Me neither. <laughs> so if your guys' guess was Damnation Valley, you are put in the draw to get your, uh, or you put into the, the draw for our monthly prize draw. <laughs> Way with words today, guys. <laughs> um, Our new trivia question this week, you know the drill, do not answer in the chat, DM us so that you can get into that prize draw for trivia. What actor known for Jurassic Park played Odin briefly in Thor Ragnarok? 
This one is probably a Googleable one, but that's okay. One of my favorite actors for sure, and has been for a long time. DM us guys, that includes questions at mortalbuilders.org or on any of our social media platforms. All right, now we got all of that stuff out of the way. The part I'm excited for, welcome John, how are you? <laughs> I'm very well, thank you. Thanks for the invite and thanks for the welcome. It's good to be here. So just for the audience, john-gwyn.com, you can find all about John. Not only is he the fantastic author of this book, but also the Of Blood and Bone series, The Faithful and the Fallen, a lot of really amazing works, and also a Viking reenactor, which I'm very excited to ask you about that. <laughs> Also on your website, you just seem to have a very colorful background. If you don't mind, I'm going to read one of the excerpts you had on there. Sure, of course. Um, it says that you studied and lectured at Brighton University, played double bass in a rock and roll band, packed soap, been a waiter at a French restaurant, worked on landscaping and carpentry crews, traveled the U.S. and Canada, and as I just mentioned, a full-time writer and Viking reenactment. Um, that's a lot going on. If you... Don't mind me asking, what did you study and lecture at Brighton? Okay, so it's um, it was a sociology-based degree for my BA and for my master's, really focusing on sports. So, but using sport really as a focus for um, looking at issues of class, race, gender, you know, sociological issues, really. Do you feel like any of that in any way makes it into your, your writing? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't use my writing as a soapbox to preach from or anything. I do it to entertain. But um, I think you can't not put a part of yourself into your writing. It's, you know, it's such a personal thing. So I, I think that a bit of an author leaps into what they write. And I, you know, I hope that I'm socially minded. I try to be. So you may find just little threads to do with equality gender, class, race, you know, running throughout most of what I write. I think if you look hard enough, you'll, you'll probably see it in there somewhere. Yeah, that's great to know. Just for the audience, real quick, I'm going to read this excerpt on the back of your book. It says, when God fought, it was a battle so savage they destroyed themselves, leaving nothing but bones and broken land of Vigrid in their wake. Now, as whispers of war echo over the fjords and across plains, fate follows in the footsteps of three warriors, a huntress on a perilous quest, a noble woman pursuing battle fame, and a thrall seeking retribution among the mercenaries known as the Bloodsworn. Great book. As we just kind of talked about, and as the back of your book kind of hints at, your main characters, plural, are women, which I really enjoyed. I feel like with myself and kind of being also a uh, Norwegian, I kind of was able to put myself in this book a little bit and that's a really special experience. Can you speak a little bit what it's like writing for you, strong female leads? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm so pleased you enjoyed it. That's really great to hear, so thank you. I approach, so with the, the female lead in this, I really like my starting point is just writing um, characters with believable backgrounds. And I don't even think that much about the gender to start off with. It's, it's about um, you know, starting points and backstories for me for, for how I go about crafting characters. 
so Orca, for example, which is one of the characters um, that you're talking about, is a lady in her um, early 40s, I imagine, something like that. And um, she started as a trope when I started writing or started thinking about this particular series. I like to play with tropes because I know some people think tropes are a, a bit of a swear word, but I think tropes are there for a reason. They may be generalised, but I think if you can write a trope in contemporary fantasy that is engaging and believable, then it's not a problem to me that they're in the book. So the, the trope that I, I was thinking about was um, the retired person of violence. So, mm. you know, like um, William Money, Clint Eastwood in Unforgiven... Wolverine and Logan, that kind of, you know, older character, someone who's had a, a violent past but has walked away from it and settled down. And I remember talking to my agent, Julie Chris, just running past her, my very rough ideas as I started kind of putting the whole world and characters together. And I said that I wanted to do something with that. And so we chatted backwards and forth. And somewhere during the conversation, the idea of flipping that traditional gender because those characters are traditionally male, I think you find in film and in books. And writing it from a female perspective just might be an interesting and fresher approach to that kind of trope. And, and that's where she started. So that's how I went about crafting Orca. And I think a lot of the story kind of came together around her and her character. Yeah, uh, looking back, I don't think you ever explicitly mention her age. But knowing that you imagine the character as like late 30s, early 40s, for the audience, also a mother, which is very prevalent throughout the book, it's ingrained in the book, are other aspects I think are often left out. Even when there are female leads, they tend to be, you know, younger yes. women praise for their beauty and that's kind of about the part that they play. <laughs> so yeah, that's even better to kind of like imagine this strong, not older, but middle-aged woman. So... Yeah. Yeah. Your characterization, so kind of keeping on that topic, what is, it, it's like, it's super richly developed. So you kind of talked about having really strong backgrounds. What is the process for you? Because I find that reading your book, not only are the characters really strong, but the place in which they exist is super immersive. I'm so pleased you felt that. The whole series, the, the Bloodsworn Saga and, and this particular book, The Shadow of the Gods, which is book one, it's really my kind of love song to Norse mythology because I, I grew up loving it as a child, you know, tales of Beowulf and Ragnarok. And that's just always kind of had a, a special place for me. So it's, and then as an adult, I've gone on to do some Viking reenactment, which is a lot of fun. So it's, it's, it's always been important to me and something that I've wanted to do. So I really wanted to craft a world that felt Norse. I wanted it to feel mythological, but also historical, you know, so I've really tried to find elements that will just bring that across in the story. So those kind of historical, authentic details combined with touches of Norse mythology and Scandinavian folklore. So the world and the characters kind of grew together for me. Usually the way I approach writing is... I'll get an idea, kind of a seed or a spark, and then I'll start to craft the world. And usually I'll have kind of a series of events starting to take place. And then the characters um, will become more fleshed out as I think about a point of view that is uh, the best kind of character to tell those events from. 
that's my approach. So they kind of both grow up together simultaneously, but it often starts probably with the world and then the characters are kind of build into it so that they can see the events and describe the world best. And obviously, hopefully you want your characters to be interesting and engaging. And so I try to spend a lot of time thinking about all, all the little details of, of their backstories that will just make the story an interesting story, you know, um, that, that it'll hopefully make you want to turn the pages and find out about their past, find out about their future and care about them. For me, that's the heart of when I read. And my mantra has always been, write what you want to read. So the books I love reading are the ones where I feel that emotional engagement with the characters, where I care what happens to them. If it's a character that, you know, that I, I hate or that I love, you know, that I want them to survive or to die a very unpleasant, in an unpleasant way, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that, they're the books that I love to read. So that's what I try that's my goal, you know, that's kind of the holy grail of what I'm, I'm striving to achieve in what I write. And I feel that not even their backstories, but throughout the book, you know, the food, the clothing, weapons, the campfire legends. Um, it's really this experience that you feel like you're kind of with the character. So while this is really heavy and Norse mythology for anyone who loves that, it, you'll love this book. It's also really heavy in just the tactile journey that you're taking with the character. And it's, I really appreciate it. Um, You also kind of mentioned um, the emotional engagement of of kind of going along with the character. Your book has tender moments, but I wouldn't describe it as like, you know, it's not like emotional. It's not like outpouring of emotion. You know, they like, they don't wear their heart on their sleeve. Do you have a conscientious way that you like create those kinds of moments in the book? Sure. It's a hard question to answer because I think obviously I can only tell you how it works for me and, and how I approach writing. And it's not a one route works for all. You know, it's, it's I think writing is very much you find your own way and what works for you. You know, it works for you. So, I mean, so, yes, it's, it's not what I call sentimental in, right. in it outpouring of emotion I think in my other series there's probably a little bit more of that but this one I felt that when I was doing my research into Norse mythology and you know the Icelandic sagas and the uh, prose and poetic editors and all those kind of core manuscripts for um, Norse mythology and history I just felt that the, the, the Norse culture feels very pragmatic to me yes um, and they've got a, <laughs> a they've got a kind of a dry sense of humor that life is hard and you just laugh at it you know you just take it on the chin and you kind of laugh at it so that's part of what I wanted to put into this story so there's not as much in the way of emotional dialogue definitely not but I think I hope that the choices that the characters make and the actions that they do kind of show rather than tell their emotional state there's always, in everything I write, family and friendship, to me, they're the, the thing that bind us all together as a human race. They're kind of the fundamentals to us all. So there'll always be strong themes of family and friendship in anything I write. And that's no different for this book and this series. I just approached it in a slightly more pragmatic, less sentimental way than I have my other series. 
I think. And that was just really in the hope to just give it that Norse touch. Yeah, I mean, I also appreciate that given a strong female lead, it's not necessarily also leaning into cliches that the female is more emotional <laughs> necessarily. It's, you know, she's a, she's a warrior and she very much acts like a warrior, <laughs> even as a retired one. So kind of this mixed Nordic fantasy with also these living experienced people. Do you have any advice for writers who are trying to mix that kind of fantasy with real depicted history? Well, I mean, the only advice is the way I approach writing, because I haven't had a background in kind of creative writing. My first book, Malice, book one of The Faithful and the Fallen, was the first thing I'd ever written creatively. And I came to writing quite late in life, in my early 30s. And when I started, if I just give you a little bit of backstory, I, um, I was studying and teaching at, at Brighton University, but my daughter Harriet's profoundly disabled. And so my wife and I are carers, but there was a particular time where she was, I mean, Harriet always needs a lot of care. I mean, she's wonderful, but, you know, she needs a 24-7 care. But there was a particular time or period of time where she was exceptionally unwell. And so I stepped out of uni to just help more at home. And that's when I started writing because I just thought thought I needed a hobby, something I could do at home. And my wife suggested that I try writing a book. And I can remember it clearly. We'd just come back from seeing the two towers at the second Lord of the Rings film. Oh. And we were and we were sitting in the hall and we were having dinner and my wife Caroline said, you should try writing a book. And I was like, don't be silly. You know, you need, you need certain key factors like plot, character and some serious talent. And then my children kind of got in on the conversation and after a little while, I thought, you know what, I'll have a go. It's a hobby. It might be fun. So that's how I started writing. But when I sat down to have a go, I suddenly thought, actually, I don't really know how to do this. But <laughs> the only way I knew how to write was how I'd learned to, at uni, which was the mantra of my one of my favourite tutors was to, to pass your degree, you need to read and then you need to read, and then you need to read some more. And he was talking about research, obviously, for whatever essay or dissertation you're working on. And so that's how I approached writing fantasy. You know, I just started researching, and all of my fantasy novels are really a blend of, hopefully, history and mythology. So my first series is very much a blend of Celtic and Roman history and mythology. It's inspired by Caesar's Gallic War and Boudicca's Revolt, alongside things like John Milton's Paradise Lost and a big dose of of Celtic mythology. So that's how I approach writing. And that's exactly the same method that I used for this new series, except I just focused on Norse mythology, Scandinavian folklore and Viking era history. And I just make notes as I go through it, pull out things that either I think, oh, that's cool, or um, I love those details. Viking reenactments helped a lot with that as well. And um, I mean, with this particular story, one of these, so I, I, with with the Bloodstorn saga, Beowulf and Ragnarok were kind of their starting points inspirationally. So, you know, Beowulf is that monster hunting. He's got his band of warriors and they hunted the monster Grendel and his mother and then the dragon. 
And Ragnarok, obviously, is that end of days battle where all the gods met and just pretty much wiped each other out. And I remember reading a passage in the Rose Edda called the, one of the books is called the Voluspa. And it's about a CRS who is prophesying to Odin the whole history of Norse mythology. And it ends with a, a really beautifully described um, description of Ragnarok. And almost the last passage in the whole of the Voluspa is where the gods are dead and the world is born anew. And then out of the ashes rose this dragon. And um, this is Nithoga. The, the, and this dragon was... Is that this? Kind of, <laughs> that's the dragon inspired by this passage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I haven't called Nithoga, but Nithoga was locked in chambers beneath Yggdrasil, the world tree. And he used to kind of chew on corpses as they passed through his chamber towards Helheim, I think. And so I remember reading this passage where this dragon emerged from the ashes and, and rose into the air and corpses were hanging from his wings. And I thought, oh, that's, that's cool. And then the next thought, I wonder what happened next. And that's kind of this, that was the spark for this new series. So that in a nutshell, that's how I approach writing. It's kind of a mixture of those mythological inspirations and then just trying to weave it into a world that feels historically authentic. That's amazing. Do you base the landscape? Do you ever get to travel to those areas or do you kind of just decide what you want them to look like or base them lightly off of the epics you've read and kind of incorporate it that way? Yeah, I'd love to travel Scandinavia. I haven't. I'd really love to. But, you know, with my daughter, traveling is always quite an issue. My reenactment group I'm in, they go sailing Viking longships every summer uh, for their holiday in Denmark, I think. Um, So that's something that I'd love to do. It'd be a lot of fun, but it's just, it's problematic getting away. So, yeah, unfortunately, I can't do as much kind of on-site research (laughs) as I'd like to do. It doesn't take away from the book at all. I would have never known that you never traveled to those areas anyways. (laughs) So you said that you decided to do this research and you picked apart the things that you liked and you just incorporated those into the book. When you started looking into those histories, did you have a, a place that you kind of knew to start from? Like, did you always have a love for those Scandinavia and other similar mythologies? Yeah, absolutely. I remember being seven or eight years old and my teacher at school sat us all down around him and he picked up a book to read to us you know it's a story time at school and he opened a book called the book of three which is by Lloyd Alexander like the black cauldron exactly yeah Mm -hmm. black cauldron is book two in that series but Disney made a film combining book one and two and called it the black cauldron and that's really heavily inspired by Welsh mythology and the Mabinogian I think Lloyd Alexander uh, stayed in Wales for a while and just fell in love with the country. And that's, I think that's where the Chronicles of Prydain, which is a series, that's where that all came from. But that is the book that hooked me on fantasy. It's my first memory of loving a book. And I loved it so much that I, I remember pleading with my mum to buy the book for me and book two in the series. And I think she got them, you know, that following weekend. And that's the book that's kind of, sucked me into that slippery slope of hobbits and ring wraiths and dragons and tales of king arthur but i can remember very fondly always loving that blend of kind of fantasy books 
but also mythological tales as well. So I'd always have, you know, alongside my The Hobbit and Narnia, I'd have, you know, tales of the Greek gods and, and the story of Troy and Beowulf and Berserkers and, and you know, the Norse gods and Thor and but all those tales, all those books would be, you know, just on my shelf. And that's what I remember nostalgically growing up loving. So, yeah, that love for mythology is always just as far back as I can remember being a part of my love for reading. And then as, you know, as I grew a bit older, I started because mythology is really just half a step away from history um, or ancient history anyway. You know, so much of it is wrapped up and intertwined together. So um, it wasn't a big step for me to start getting into kind of historical novels and just becoming a bit of a historian. So I love that that side of reading as well. And, and that's probably the thing I read the most outside of fantasy is historical novels, you know, Bernard Cornwell and Conigledon, Giles Christian and Christian Cameron, all those guys, you know, I, I love reading that as well. So really it's just basically my books are just me. I love mythology. I love history. And I just try and kind of wrap them up together a bit like a braided beard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you guys read this and you enjoy it, please read Joan's other stuff because um, while I think this is the best of your work, I will take that leap and say it. <laughs> the other stuff is pretty amazing. So it has the similar feel of combining all those elements. Let's talk a little bit about Viking reenactment. <laughs> Obviously, where that comes from is obvious, like you love the mythology. How does that influence your work or vice versa? When did that start? Just kind of interested in all of it. <laughs> sure, sure. As a family, we've always gone along to kind of medieval weekends and festivals as observers, you know, really enjoyed the experience. And I've wanted to join a reenactment group for a long time. But as I said earlier, traveling is always a bit of an issue for me. So I eventually found, um, came across a group uh, called the Spears of Andred, which is a Viking reenactment group who trained locally. And so this was probably five or six years ago now. And my sons, all three of my sons, well, you know, they might say I've brainwashed them, but they love history and they love fantasy as well. So we all joined together, this reenactment group, and it's just so much fun. You know, it's, it's great fun. We train out in the open on the downs. So there's, you know, we're not in a sports hall or anything like that. We're out in the weather and it's, it feels great doing that. But I remember very clearly my first session, we turned up and I got given a battered round shield with an iron boss and a helmet and a spear and was then taught the very basics of shield and spear work. And this is just a, a nice little example of, of the details that reenactment can help, or it helps me anyway, put into my writing. So after 10 or 15 minutes of combat with a shield, and you know, you're standing and holding it like this, the pain, the burn in your shoulder, <laughs> um, from this, and the shield's not that heavy. You know, you pick it up and it's fine. But after 10 or 15 minutes of doing some combat, it, it's excruciating pain. It got to the point I had to take, just take a few steps back and just drop my arm because I couldn't, I couldn't physically hold it up any longer. And that really struck me that as, you know, obviously so much of writing is imagination. So that's what we do. But just to experience those little details is something that I found really 
well, hopefully, I hope it adds layers of detail and authenticity to, to what I write. And it's not just the combat, you know, like I've had a coat of mail that I've got stuck in. <laughs> it's not as easy being a Viking as you'd think sometimes. And mail is, is heavy. You know, you don't realise it's, it's really heavy. So just walking around with that weight on your shoulders and it rubs on your shoulders. So you kind of hoist it up and tie your belt really tight to take the weight off of your shoulders. That's another kind of um, just another tip for wearing mail, another detail that I would never have thought of unless I'd done it. There's so many small things like doing buckles up, for example, because you do your chin strap up on your helmet, you do your buckles up for your weapons belt, but you usually wear gloves in combat, but you don't want to put them on first because you can't do your buckles up. So you always put your gloves on last. There's just hundreds of little, tiny little details like that, that I've learned through doing reenactment. And that's before you even get to step into the shield wall, you know, and start trying to stab someone. (laughs) And you said, hopefully not just your battle scenes, but I do want to touch on that because your battle scenes are fantastic. They're not, uh, they don't feel like... (laughs) You know, sometimes when you're reading, battle scenes can almost feel like they're like a music video choreography or something, (laughs) but yours don't come across like that. You just feel like you're in the messy, unscripted, you know, scary uh, thing that battle is. And it's just interesting to think of how the reenactment might add to that. Is there other influences that help you create such vivid, beautiful battle scenes? Oh, I mean, thank you for saying that. I'm really pleased to hear you say that because that's what I strive to do. You know, I agree with you. So much of, of what you read feels kind of choreographed and balletic, you know, like a dance. And um, I don't think real combat tends to be very much like that. Um, obviously, I've been doing reenactment for five or six years. So I've been writing for longer, a lot longer than that. But I remember that there was a film that really inspired me or stuck with me that I kept with me as I started writing combat. And um, it might be a bit of a surprise to you, but it was the film Braveheart, you know, the William Wallace um, (laughs) film. So when I went to see that, it was back in 95, 96, when it came out. And at that time, I mean, I thought it felt groundbreaking in the way that it filmed, you know, medieval combat. I think... Films of that type, you know, whether they were fantasy or historical films with swords in, basically, always had that Hollywood gloss where, it, you know, it was... Um, and Braveheart just stripped all of that away and it felt horrible and terrifying and this kind of kaleidoscopic, overwhelming flood of images that kind of assault your senses just the way it's filmed it felt like you were there standing on the field with them Uh, I remember just having that feeling when I came away from watching it the first time and I think it's a bit like the opening scene in Saving Private Ryan it had that kind of impact at the time and obviously film and tv has moved on since then so it probably feels a little bit tame compared to anything else now but um at the time, it felt really groundbreaking to me. And now I remember when I started writing that that's the feeling I was trying to capture, you know, as if someone was in the middle of it with a GoPro on or, you know, a steady cam, you know, that, that kind of feeling of terror and, and rage and, and, and this just overwhelming assault on the senses. 
a film I've seen recently that, again, I'd say touches on that for me is um, The Revenant. Mm. Um, there's an opening scene of an ambush and it's just like these fractured images coming at you from all around and the camera's just following, moving around and it feels chaotic and terrifying and, and that's that's really what I'm trying to capture in my combat. I, I don't want to write, you know, choreographed dances. I try, again, you know, I try and make it feel authentic. And from my experience at reenactment, you know, it's very much, you're in a shield wall and you're, and you're focusing on one thing and you die from someone that, that you've not seen. You know, you, you have a spear come in from an angle where you're not focused and it's, it's quite kaleidoscopic like that so that's how I try to approach combat do you think that having done the reenactment with that combat stuff makes you feel kind of closer to your characters as well or I don't know how your process works like if you do even feel kind of close to your characters but kind of having a sense of what it might feel like for them you know putting on the armor and all that stuff oh definitely yeah I hope so yeah yeah I do I, I really hope so you know I try to to, to just stir in the experiences that I have and then just kind of that creative imagination go to work on it as well. But I, I, I really try to, to ground the characters in those kind of authentic details, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, just you talking about, for instance, like putting on the armour and like it being heavy and stuff, it makes me think about how not only strong, but how battered and calloused and just different their experience would be compared to those little details that maybe kind of get lost even when you're watching them you know (laughs) fighting and stuff the marks are obvious when they get hurt but you know those little wear and tears that take on for years kind of it really like elevates that imagination yeah yeah for sure yeah do you in the reenactments is everything kind of historically accurate or pretty close um, so in our group here, yeah, they try to be as historically accurate as we can be. Obviously, with, you know, a, a lot of history is a guessing game, isn't it? Especially when you go back that far, you know, you're going back a thousand plus years. Then you have archaeology and historical finds and old manuscripts to go on. But you don't know for sure. But we've got someone who's like, our, they call them the authenticity officer. So they check your kit <laughs> You know, they check your kit so it's all authentic before you go on. So, for example, if your tunic has to be hand-stitched, the stitch lines have to be hand-stitched, they can't be sewn with a sewing machine, you know, or something like that. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It can be quite annoying sometimes. <laughs> so you're but, telling um, me the back of the chain mail doesn't have a zipper? I'm afraid, <laughs> I'm afraid not, no. <laughs> It'd be so much easier. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as some of the people know, I, I might get in and out of my armor, which is not historically accurate for garb and stuff. And it is a process. I mean, it's all the straps and the, you know, it probably wouldn't pass the police, but. <laughs> so kind of changing gears a little bit. I'd imagine that as a writer, you don't get to read all the time because um, that's kind of the, the theme that I get to hear a lot. But are there any modern fantasy works that you feel either influence your work or that you just enjoy or would recommend? 
Okay, yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's one of the ironies of writing is that you get less time to read, <laughs> which can be really frustrating sometimes. But yeah, you know, I still do manage to squeeze in books that I read for pleasure. I mean, one of my favourite fantasy writers is Joe Abercrombie. Oh, yes. You know, even though, I mean, I, I know he's kind of uh, labelled as grimdark, but... Um, oh, we like him. We've had him on here. <laughs> Yeah, and I like I love Grimdark as much as I love any other subgenre in fantasy, but I think just as a writer that he's exceptional. There aren't many people out there who can write the dialogue of a character and you know who the character is just by reading a couple of lines of their dialogue. Don't tell him I said that. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's an exceptional writer. Other people that I that are kind of my comfort reads that I always I'll, I'll buy their books and read them without knowing anything about it just because I love their you know, just everything about how they write clicks for me is um, Bernard Cornwell. I, I love his historical novels. Christian Cameron, who also writes fantasy, is Miles Cameron. I love pretty much everything he's written. So there's, you know, quite a few contemporary authors as well that, that I, I'll read when I can. I've just read Jay Kristoff's Empire of the Vampire, which I thought was great. And I'm yeah. reading an indie author at the moment, Ben Galley, his book called The Forever King, which is a lot of fun. I'm really enjoying that. The Forever King, huh? Yeah. But it's like, you know, you just get snippets of time. So maybe bedtime, <laughs> um, stuff like that. That's, that's when I get most of my kind of pleasure reading in. All the other reading time is it, it ends up going on, usually on research for either what I'm writing right now or ideas for what might be coming next. I know some people might kind of think of history read as a bit dry, but, you know, you also get to read a lot of mythology. Is there any historical books that you'd recommend for people? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if you're talking about kind of Viking era history, there's a book called The Children of Ash and Elm, and that's by um, Dr. Neil, Neil Price, I think. I think he's a lecturer at Uppsala University. But anyway, that's as definitive and thorough a retelling of Viking era history as I've come across. And it's told in an engaging way as well, I think. There are a lot of historians who I think these days are writing in more of an engaging way and less of a dry approach. Neil Oliver, a Scottish guy, has written about the Vikings and his book was it was funny, you know, it was, it was really funny. Um, who else? I mean, there's quite a few out there now. I think Mark Morris... There's another historian who's, it's not about the Viking era, he's written about the, the Normans and the history of, of England leading up to the Battle of Hastings, but that's a really entertaining read as well. So I think that, you know, even if you want to read history, you can find people that are writing it in an engaging way these days. And I like to read historical novels as well. So, you know, it, it's not, it, it's more of a, that's even less dry, you know, because you've got hopefully an engaging tale where you can root for the characters, but you can still pick a few historical tidbits up along the way. Yeah, I put the um, Ash and Elm into the chat and it looks like it's also on Libro, so that's cool. If anybody wants to check it out as an audiobook, What do you hope, you know, because you said that you write books that you want to read. So what do you hope that people get the most out of this most recent work? Well, first of all, I hope that I hope that my readers will just be swept away for however long it takes them to read it. You know, that they'll just they'll find a story that entertains them and engages them emotionally, where hopefully when they close the book, 
that they'll be thinking about those characters, they'll be wondering about what happens next, and just carried away with the story. Just, you know, just pure escapist entertainment is my first goal. Um, tears are always good. <laughs> if a reader cries or just feels any kind of emotional reaction, then, you know, that's amazing to me. That's the Holy Grail. Some kind of emotional response or reaction. That's what I'm hoping for. Yeah, you mentioned Joe uh, Abercrombie. His books are some of the only ones that ever made me like laugh out loud, you know, except yeah. Lord of the Rings, maybe a couple of times. <laughs> this book made me do that once or twice. So it's not all tears and sadness or, or anything like that, if you guys are wondering. It definitely has that dry humor that you mentioned, that kind of Nordic sense of it's hard and we're going to do it. <laughs> so just getting through. But yeah, I guess lastly, there are some epic, this is just kind of me fulfilling some of my personal things I want to know, <laughs> but you have um, some pretty cool, like epic shots in there, for instance, and I'm sorry if this one gets mentioned all the time, but the mountains with like, you know, the like skull head and the, um, the spine kind of, I am not describing this. If you're, if you're not a reader of this book, just read it because it's pretty cool, but it's basically this god um skeleton I guess do you like write out those kind of moments first or do you fall into those along with the character yeah I know what you're talking about it's the skeleton of a dead god who was a snake snarker his skeleton kind of forms a mountain range he's so huge but I mean really it's an organic experience writing so sometimes that that idea came to me very early on. I remember going up to London to my publishers about the story and they, they really, it was our first meeting. And they just signed me on, you know, I'd, I'd put over the synopsis for the story and they were kind of asking me questions about, okay, so this is Norse inspired. Does it actually have, you know, Odin and Thor and Loki in it? Or, or And I was like, no, no, it's just all that kind of mythology is a springboard to me to, to kind of craft my own world, which is inspired by, but not copying it. And they said, can you give me any idea of the, of what the world will be like? And I said, well, one of my early ideas, which, which I'm playing around with, is that you'll have this dead snake god's body, his skeleton, which kind of is the, the backbone of this country uh, it forms a mountain range and there'll be a city a fortress built within his skull there'll be a fjord running into his open jaws and there'll be a city within the skull and so that was one of the really early ideas i had that i that kind of the rest of the world grew around but sometimes it could be right towards the end of that creative process where I'm crafting the world that I'll get those ideas. It, it just comes, it just comes as it comes. I think it's not um, right now I'm doing world building. Now I'm doing characters. So they're all <laughs> yeah. kind of moving, jumbling around together. And so I'm just jotting this, this down about characters and thinking about the world. And, you know, it, it's, it's a big old mess in my head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm honestly surprised that as far as the characters that you don't have essentially like character sheets already written because they do feel they do feel you know like a fully developed character you get the sense that there's a lot there that is unsaid or there's a full background to this person not just existing in the moment that you're reading them kind of sense so yeah uh, to hear. I'm glad, glad you feel like that <laughs> well we have a little less than 10 minutes left 
We do a lightning round of just some fun questions that we like to ask the author, if that's okay, okay. with you, we'll go yeah. through a couple. Sure. Okay, one is, what is your beverage of choice? It can be non-alcoholic, alcoholic. What is your favorite thing to, to grab or the thing that you grab the most? Oh, I mean, probably coffee. Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I start my day with a hot cup of coffee and it, you know, and that's often what I look forward to in my writing breaks. So I'll go and put the kettle on and make a cup of coffee. So yeah, coffee is my fuel. Yeah, this is something really silly, but if any of you guys are looking for something luxury and you enjoy coffee, I ordered a mug warmer off of Amazon so it keeps your coffee hot all the time. It's yeah. highly recommended. Um, that is okay. a top tip. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what is your meal of choice? This can be your favorite meal or the last thing you ate if you don't have a favorite. <laughs> okay, meal of choice. It'd have to be one of my wife's roasts she cooks an amazing roast oh um, yeah yeah it's definitely my, my favorite meal especially christmas dinner what would you have as like what's your favorite side with a roast what what's in there um swede i like buttered swede it's always a favorite <laughs> that sounds good i don't think that we have that a lot in the u.s so um you guys should try it <laughs> You kind of already went over some great reads, some things that you recommend. What is like your favorite book of all time, if you could only choose one? Okay, I mean, I, that's <laughs> fair. Okay, tough, tough three. <laughs> okay, okay. I'll stretch it to top three series. How about that? Um, okay. So, Lord of the Rings is is my favorite series of all time. You know, it's the the book that I've loved and read so many times. So that's in there. Um, Bernard Cornwell's trilogy on King Arthur called The Warlord Chronicles. I've read that multiple times and I weep every time. You know, it's it's just beautiful. And the characterization, the characters in that series are just fantastic. You know, his take on Merlin and Lancelot, it's just, it's, it's hilarious and tragic. Um, brilliant. You know, it's one of my favourite series of all time. And then I'd probably say something about David Gemmell, the Regante series, because Gemmell was a very big influence on me. He was the first writer I read, Legend, his first book, and I was a teenager when that came out. And it's the first time I remember staying up most of the night because I just had to know. I had to turn the pages. I couldn't stop. And I hadn't really had that experience before. So, you know, Gemmell has a very fond place in my heart. And my favourite series of his is the Regante series, which is kind of a, a, a Celtic-inspired story. So is that okay? That's my top three. That's that's perfect. I mean, you know, the people that come here, they like to read. So there's always room for more suggestions. <laughs> All right. What is something that you love to watch or binge watch? That's fine, too. Oh, I mean, so many things. So on Saturday night, we all watched Avengers Endgame. Oh. <laughs> that was not for the first time. You know, we watched that plenty of times. So that's always kind of a comfort watch for us. I mean, so many different, I mean, the Godfather series. I, I love the Godfather. You know, classic movies is something that I like to watch a lot. So uh, Logan, we watched a few weeks ago, which is, again, a film that I could watch many, many times. I love that film. All right. 
right. And then last question. If you could sit down and have a conversation with anyone, real or imagined, alive or dead, who would it be? Um, King Arthur. Oh, shit. <laughs> I don't think we've had that uh, as an answer. <laughs> I would just didn't know if he was real or not. Historical characters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, honestly, anything from around that period is is a super cool read. Again, just to recap, we've talked a bit about epic fantasy. We haven't talked on the stream uh, in a while about epic fantasies, but if that's kind of what you guys love to read and that's a bit of a nice escape for you, I highly recommend this book, Shadow of Gods. There is a female lead, so it has a bit of a different point of view, which I personally really enjoy. You can get it on World Builders Market right now, and the first 20 will receive a book plate signed by John Gwen and gets it to us by you guys as well. So thank you for that. Check it out. Thank you everyone for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Bye, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to World Builders Weekly, everyone. Take care of yourselves and take care of the people you love. Mm-hmm.